Hello and welcome to episode 48 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the coiled serpent himself, Shane Beeps. Hiss. Hiss? Rat, rat, tail rattle? <laughs> also with us here in Chicago, the hero we deserve, Dave Harberger. I, I played a deck this week that's a lot like other decks I've talked about before. I hope everybody's ready. Mm. So a lot of green. Yeah. Count Radish Zach is on leave this week. He caught the hot Lanta flu. He said he had a really good vampire bit, so I'm kind of disappointed we don't get to hear it. Yeah. Are you sure that he didn't put in there that he has a vampire bite? And then and that's how he got sick? I mean, it's just it's a one-letter typo. And that's that's pretty much like Zach. To have a one-letter typo or to get bit by a vampire. Uh, yeah, to be bitten by vampires, exactly. In Hotlanta. You guys know that vampires are very hot in Atlanta these days, right? <laughs> Southwestern vampirism is so hot right now. That yeah. As is southeastern where where Georgia actually is. Oh yeah. Is this enough vamping for the intro? Can we move on? Zach, we wish you a speedy recovery. Hope you're back next week. This week, we break down the weekend's modern challenge from Magic Online. Then for the dive down, we bring back our beloved, patent-pending, sleeve-believe-heave system to the hot new format on the block. Each of us took a different Pioneer deck through the dive down gauntlet, and we'll report back with our findings with each of these strategies and what they might tell us about the format at large. Finally, we'll wind down with a listener question, but first, some housekeeping. Greetings and salutations to our newest patrons, Unpronounceable, which is actually their name on Patreon, we're not being rude, and Adam. Also thanks to Piper T for going up a tier in their support. Thanks, Piper. This week's episode is brought to you by our patrons. They generously support us each and every week. If you'd like to join the Dive Down Nation, take a look at our Patreon page at uh, www.patreon.com slash thedivedown. We're also brought to you by manatraders.com, which is honestly the best way to rent cards on Magic the Gathering online and in paper. We've all been using Manatraders for a long time, even before they decided to sponsor us. So get 10% off your first three months of Manatraders by using code THEDIVEDOWN when you sign up. Now with all that out of the way, let's jump over to David, who is at the news desk this week. Bow, 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 bow. But we have... Breaking news once again. It's another Monday. I love these Mondays. I love these Mondays. Such fresh, hot takes yeah, for we us to have. Record them on Monday, and then you get them on Friday. Man, this these this proper editing system we have just really makes us not as timely. Well, they're aged takes. We we have to think about the long game when we give our our thoughts on these things. David, what happened today? I took a work from home day, so I was practically offline. Is that true? Well, it's true that I took a work from home day. <laughs> and the second is he part unpacking, is unpacking some boxes playing zelda who knows who knows so hey so we had another band announcement banned and restricted announcement in the pioneer format in our newly ongoing series of pioneer band and restricted check-ins that we're going to have every monday from now on and today i feel like wizards of the coast threw us a little bit of a curveball they decided to ban the card veil of summer 
And in case you don't know what Veil of Summer does, it is an instant. It costs a single green mana. And it says, draw a card if an opponent has cast a blue or black spell this turn. Spells you control can't be countered this turn. You and permanents you control gain hexproof from blue and black until end of turn. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, they said, after seeing generally positive changes to the metagame after the bans of three cards last week, they state they still believe that green-based aggro and ramp decks are still overrepresented in the metagame at the expense of mid-range and control. That's specifically what they said. So therefore, they're banning Veil of Summer to allow for natural metagame forces, in quotes, to provide counterpressure against these strategies. So they want to increase the incentive for people to play reactive strategies uh, without really fundamentally changing anything right now. So I think the message here is Veil of Summer was just too effective and eliminating many of the core strategies of the blue and black base decks. So they wanted to get some balance back in there. What do you think were the main cards that Veil was really, uh, really effective against? I mean, any removal. Yeah, basically all the best removal, or some of the best removal, is based in black. Yeah, Abrupt Decay, Fatal Push, uh, Assassin's Trophy. Tyrant Scorn, Dreadbore. Could also stop Thoughtseize and uh, Thought Erasure. It even stops Angrath's Rampage. So the first card that I thought of when they banned this, honestly, was Thoughtseize. Yes, exactly. And I think that that in some ways, the, and even, I, I don't remember all the people that I saw saying this on Twitter immediately in the aftermath of the ban, it felt like a lot of people kind of came to a similar conclusion where they just felt like, hey, you know, it's a shame, or I don't know if a shame is the right word, it's unbelievable that Thoughtseize is not a pillar of this format right now, being mm-hmm. that it's one of the best kind of mid-rangey cards to have it's the best discard card that we have and the fact that it's not playable because veil of summer is so pervasive is really problematic and so that was the first thing i thought was that now we might be able to have some more kind of uh thought cz based mid-rangey decks in in the, the meta and start to ascend a little bit so what do you what do you think overall Are you guys happy that this card is gone are you sad that this card is gone or I mean, even as a player who likes green a lot, and I have Veil of Summer in my sideboard for the deck I was testing this week, I think it's a little overpowered as a hoser. It's just, it's too undercosted. Like one and a green would probably be like, okay, this is still really good. But a single green, it's cost, it's, this is a, like, a more powerful format cost. You know what I mean? So often it just plays like a one mana two for one and practically has the same impact on a game as, Cryptic Command. And I think that's really where the power level issue of this card lied, right? Like the opportunity cost was so low of including it in your sideboards that when you got to use it, it was practically a blowout. Yeah, it has really interesting templating too, where you could use this card not even strictly reactively. Like there are instances where you could cast it kind of at the beginning of your turn and it wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to that this card so there you guys know that there's a card that's extremely close to this card that already existed right autumn's veil yep that basically the line that is missing is uh draw a card that's kind of important you've mentioned that a few times it's extremely important and so the fact that that people got to play veil of summer so it's like they decided they needed to juice up autumn's veil to be able to give green a sideboard option that was worth playing and turns out it was way too worth playing across many, many formats. One thing that we're going to talk about in a minute in the Modern Challenge is there's a Storm deck in the top eight of the Modern Challenge that sideboards, this is Modern, to emphasize, 
sideboards three Veil of Summers as the only green cards in a Gift Storm deck. So the card is just everywhere. I think it's powerful enough for modern. It just seems like maybe it's going to be too oppressive in Pioneer. And uh, standard players are just going to have to deal with it for a while until it rotates out. Yeah, I think ultimately, to answer your question, I think it's a good choice. I think it's really, we have not seen a lot of mid-range and control decks really showing up yet. We'll talk about that later on in the episode. I think this does open the door up a little bit more for them. It does also kind of signal to us that Wizards was not fooling around when they said that they were going to ban often and aggressively. And we sort of alluded when we started this segment that it was a curveball banning. I certainly agree with that feeling. There was a lot of other powerful cards that I think were on players' watch list. I'm not sure how many of them assumed Veil of Summer would eat it just because it's such a narrow sideboard card and a color hoser. But I think this is kind of a positive signal, too, that they actually care about making the format as diverse and healthy as possible and recognizing some of the cards that are pushing the limits of power in Pioneer and seeing what they can do to make uh, the playing field as even as possible. Awesome. So not totally foundation-shaking, but still super notable and definitely something that I think will help certain types of decks be better. So let's go on to uh, the actual breakdown now of the Modern Challenge of November 10th, 2019. So this is the Moto Modern Challenge. We haven't covered one of these in a while because there's been a lot of real-life events, a lot of bigger events, things like PTQs, you know, Star City Opens, Grand Prix. Um, but because of the, of the Mythic Championship in Richmond this weekend, there were no other events. So we had Magic Online to look to as our savior for the breakdown this week. Um, one thing that's also worth noting is that as far as the rest of the year goes, there's really only one more Modern Magic Fest for the rest of the year. It's November 22nd in Columbus. There's only one more Star City tournament that features Modern this year, and that's the Star City Invitational, which is next weekend. Um, there's the Players' Championship for Star City in December, but they haven't announced all the formats there. I assume that there'll probably be a little bit of Modern in that, but that's a totally different kind of tournament format. Yeah, I'm super hyped for the Invitational. We get Modern and Pioneer as the primary formats there. We're going to learn a lot about the current state of both of them there. There's so many people that are just trying to find the best deck, as we've seen with uh, you know, the Urza Midrange deck. So I'm just hyped to see what people bring to the table. Absolutely. So we're going to keep an eye on the, the events that are left, like Shane is saying. But it's just worth noting that premier level events are kind of slowing down going into the end of the year. So we'll probably be talking about Magic Online a lot more over the next few weeks uh, up until early January. So let's talk about the Modern Challenge. So the first thing to note about this event is that it looks like this modern tournament was only six rounds instead of the usual eight or nine. So what we're going to do is take a look at the list that did the best in Swiss. And there were seven 6-0 decks in the Swiss. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the overall meta of the top 32. So to start off this, our list of 6-0s, uh, one, one of the first 6-0s was a Simic Urza deck. Uh, pretty much the Lotus Box list from SCG Atlanta a few weeks ago, still getting it done. Uh, looked to me like it was just packing a few extra damping spheres in the sideboard, but that was kind of the only thing that was new to me there. So Simic Urza, still out there. That's the, uh, just as a reminder, that's the deck that's running uh, Urza, all the artifact power, also Oko, Cryptic Command, uh, Mystic Sanctuary. It's kind of a, the mid-rangey version of the Urza deck that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next deck, deck that went 6-0, Mardu Death Shadow. 
kind of awesome to see this at the top of the, the list. I haven't seen uh, one of these put up this kind of result in a while. Um, I feel like this is just more proof that if you like Death Shadow and you have Death Shadow, you should play them now, and we can talk about more of uh, more a little bit more proof in that that statement later on. But it seemed like this is a good time to do it. I don't know how long this window is going to last, so enjoy <laughs> it while you can. Uh, the one thing that stood out to me a lot about this list as someone who's played around with the Mardu list a little bit here and there is that this deck had no hex parasites. Not sure why that is. Maybe they felt like it was a little too vulnerable in the metagame right now with a lot of Karns running around or something like that, but uh, it's a good card, and I always found that it was super powerful in this deck in particular. Yeah, this deck's sweet. I love synergies like Unearth and Ranger Captain of Eos and Death Shadow. Like you, get, you can get a lot of value off of your cards. The next uh, two more of the 6-0 decks were Eldrazi Tron which I thought was interesting to see that two of them had, had uh, managed to perfect the Swiss. One of the decks is piloted by MTGO player Leyline of the Boys, which is a great screen name, by the way. I don't know why, but that's funny. I've recently heard their name mentioned, I think, on a different podcast, reading a different list of decks, so they're showing up. Hmm. So Leyline of the Boys was actually the winner of the tournament overall, so they went undefeated in the Swiss, top aided, and won the tournament, which means they went 9-0 on the day. Uh, by my eyes, it's a pretty normal-looking list. Um, there was one ha Hangerback Walker main, which I thought was kind of atypical in Eldrazi Tron. It's definitely not in the testing list that we used when we did our dive down on the deck. Uh, not sure if it's just there for a little bit of evasion so that you can make a big army and kind of turn into flyers to swing in, block some thopters. I didn't get a chance to kind of see what this is for. Do you guys have any thoughts on what a Hangerback Walker could be doing in Eldrazi Tron? I just assume it's for value if you've got tron lands and you can produce seven or more mana yeah i think one of the nice things about hangerback walker is when it gets elked it's just, it's a very big elk mm -hmm. oh because it has tokens on it yeah that's a great call yeah that's why a lot of these counter based decks are quite nice against oko in the meta because like stan said they just end up being big beefers so things like walking ballista and hangerback walker work quite nicely even as elks yeah, it's interesting. I, I recently saw, as far as Eldrazi Tron went, uh, I saw Yama Killer, um, former Dive Down guest, Gal Schlesinger, had a 14-1 run with Eldrazi Tron and tweeted out that he thought it was the best deck in Modern and has been generating sideboard guides and things like that. So if you want to see how to play the deck at a high level, I would recommend uh, checking out what Gal has to offer there. But um, it seems to me that... Chalice feels like not that great to me right now, mostly because Oko can just kill it without really worrying about it too much, but uh, I could be wrong about that. Yeah, I honestly wish I knew what was keeping Eldrazi Tron uh, still at Tier 1 status. I think a lot of people thought, you know, after Phoenix took a hit, that Eldrazi Tron would also fall down. But like you said, Gaul has been playing a ton of it after doing so much with Hardened Scales. He seems like he's really on Eldrazi Tron. I also know that Magic the Gathering Online regular Lopless John, who is doing a lot of devoted Druid-based decks, has been grinding Eldrazi Tron a lot as well. So they also are into the deck after being uh, pretty much a, a one-deck player in the past. So it definitely has something to offer people. Definitely. Uh, the next deck on the list of six, six O's, for, so our fifth deck on this list, is uh, Gift Storm, which was a uh, interesting 
addition to the list. Uh, pretty much stock build, except as I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Veil of Summer, this deck was running three Veil of Summer in the sideboard, which was super interesting and not something I'd seen in Gift Storm yet, especially given that, uh, you know, it's a blue-red deck that's not known for running green mana. What do you all think about that particular piece of sideboard tech? Whew. I mean, if if Veil of Summer is that good to stretch the mana in Gift Storm to protect against things like counter spells and hand disruption, that's saying something. Also, I mean, playing it is not hard at all. And they're not casting it off of the Mana Morphos. They have a breeding pool, a single breeding pool that they can catch off of Misty Rainforest, Polluted Delta, even Scalding Tarns. So I think Gift Storm, if they could play Crypto Command more consistently, they would. And now they have a chance to do it situationally. Yeah. It's interesting to me, the slot that it seems to have taken over in the sideboards is Dispel. Mm-hmm. And when you think about this card in comparison to the way that you would have used Dispel in uh, Gift Storm, it's just absurd how much better Veil of Summer is than Dispel, unfortunately. Simply because it cycles, right? Well, it cycles. As you said, it protects you from from hand disruption. You also can play it proactively at the beginning of a turn and see if you bait a counter spell out of them and make them get their shields down that way. So there's just a lot of stuff that you can do as far as using this as more of an aggressive tool, whereas Dispel, you're just kind of holding up in order to um, to catch somebody's, catch somebody's uh, counter spell with it. Uh, the next deck on the list is good old, what I'll call classic Dredge. Dredge Classic. Not that new dredge. This is just, I mean, this is the new dredge, but it only has a few cards different. Meet the new dredge, the same as the old dredge? <laughs> same as the old dredge. This is essentially the new deck, uh, running four Merchant of the Veil and two Golgari Thug. I've seen some different balances of like three things like three Golgari Thug, etc., etc. But this is it. Uh, Merchant of the Veil is, is here. A uh, couple conflagrate mains, you know, shriek horns, creeping chills, all the usual suspects. The three forgotten caves is is typical because you have to replace the the long game usage of faithless looting. Faithless looting. Thank you. I like the side sideboard here. I still have a really hard time with multiple thoughtsies in the sideboard. I just don't see how the mana base supports it. There's just not enough turn one sources of black. I'm going to keep harping on this and then people are going to keep winning with it. So clearly I'm in the wrong. It's not me who was wrong. It's the children. <laughs> <laughs> Old man yells at Thoughtseize. Exactly. But no, I mean, it, it gets the job done. You don't need to cast it on turn one as well. I mean, a turn two Thoughtseize will get things like primeval Titans out of people's hands any day. So has anyone noticed that on the regular art of merchant of the veil, not the showcase art, the aforementioned merchant looks a lot like our friend Riley Knight. <laughs> Whoa, you're right. Also, does anyone ever get confused between Merchant of the Veil and Liliana of the Veil? No. I just would like to know how he managed to get the veil away from her to sell it. And it's because it seems like there was a lot of hullabaloo around the veil, you know, and now he's like got it in a box. He's just carrying it around. I don't know. What's in the box? It's a veil. These are the thoughts that keep me up at night. It is also, weirdly, he's also not, does not seem to be selling a Veil of Summer. Also, Liliana of the Veil does not have a Veil of Summer either. She has a whole different Veil. I'll, I'll tell you what, though. I'm going to be playing Modern in various cities as I travel for work again, and I'm going to be taking Dredge. So, if, if you see me on the streets... Ask me about my Veils. 
Shane of the Seven Veils. Uh, but speaking of, I'm I'm gonna be. I'm just gonna put this out here. I'm gonna be down in Florida coming up sometime soon, near Tampa, and I would. If, if anyone knows any cool stores in Tampa, please email the dive down at gmail.com. I would love to come and play some modern at your store. I mean, as long as we're doing it, I'm going to be uh, right here in Chicago <laughs> for the rest of the year. Anyone wants to play in Chicago? Not me, even though I live near you. Stan, over the weekend, Stan was like, do you want to play some games this weekend? I was like, no, I don't <laughs> even have a deck put together. <laughs> come over and get some buttons. That's it. Dave, I'll build you a deck, buddy. Dave has so many paper magic cards, but they're just not together in a tight 75. We'll tell you about how he keeps all of his cards in the uh, wind down section of the show today. All right. And the final 6-0 deck on the list is another Death Shadow deck. It is Jund Death Shadow this time. Pretty much a great, the great deck, great stock build of it. Uh, looks like some interesting sideboard options, a bunch of extra one-ofs to me when I looked at the list, but it still felt like the core of the deck was pretty much what people are uh, expecting. The thing that was super interesting to me about this deck and what I've seen in in this deck a few times in Jund, uh, why does it only run two once upon a times? Does anybody have any thoughts on why we don't just run the full playset? Here's the only idea that I've come up with is that the deck is running 17 lands. So it's practically extra lands in a way that like almost like copies five through six of Mishra's Bobble in that mm-hmm. regard. So it's not necessarily doing the typical like all in try to get as many lands as possible like Amulet Titan is. It's more just trying to get a start that lets you keep more risky hands every once in a while. I mean, I think that's an interesting way to think about it. I I, I still feel like to me I've always felt like once upon a time is an all or nothing kind of card, but uh, you know, I, I could definitely see that if you don't get this on the draw, you don't want to draw this. And so it's sort of like put a couple in, let it let it ride, and and hope that you don't uh, you don't pull it in the mid game if you don't want it. Yeah, I feel like decks like these are so strained on their mana at times that casting this for its natural mana cost seems pretty brutal. Maybe I don't know. This deck only has fourteen creatures, and it does have four traverse the Ulvenwald. So this is a a way to make traverse live to get creatures. Or in addition to being extra copies of Bobble, maybe it's also extra copies of Traverse and kind of fits in like between the two. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. Anyway, so those are our seven 6-0 decks from the Swiss. So the last person to make the top eight was a Devoted Druid deck that was 5-1 uh, and one running Oko. So this is a Devoted Druid deck that, uh, yeah, ha- had some Oko in it. So this is this is a list that has Karn, Karn the Great Creator in it as well, which is uh, interesting too. It's even got four Oath of Nyssa. Huh. Makes you think. Band cards and Pioneer going on to find successful careers in modern. So the last couple of notes that we had here on the top 32 were the top three decks this week from the top 32 were, and stop me if this sounds familiar, Urza with five Simic Urza and one outcome list. Death Shadow with six total decks, four Grixis, one Jun, one Mardu, and Eldrazi Tron with five decks. So that's 17 decks for a, between those three archetypes, essentially three archetypes, for a total of a little more than half of the top 32 meta in this particular event. I'd, lo- I'd love to give a little honorable mention to the ninth place deck, which was the 
Living End, Asper Told, Crashing Footfalls deck, which I think could have made top eight, you know, maybe if Breakers had gone a little differently. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those decks that I think is getting this almost cult following of a very loyal community that's been innovating Crashing Footfalls, Asper Told, basically since Modern Horizons came out. And it's interesting to see that this deck is actually putting up real results in high-stakes MTGO tournaments. Maybe there's something to this flavor of blue-red control slash living end. For sure. I mean, it's, it's been interesting. It's, a, it's, it's hung around longer than I thought it would have. It's definitely not something that people are, are putting down and giving up on. Totally. Uh, the most played card in the top 32 was Mishra's Bauble with 48 copies. <laughs> Whew. Surprise, surprise. It turns out free cards can be good. Yeah. I mean, when there's that many Death Shadow decks and that many Urza decks, uh, that's what you get, right? Six of each means 12 decks were playing four baubles. That's 48. Check my math. Go ahead. I dare you. I refuse. Gilded Goose was also in the top 10 of most played creatures. I think it was number five on the list of most played creatures, according to Goldfish. Uh, Pretty interesting. 26 copies. Yeah. Meet the new bird, same as the old bird. Now, just it just has a it has that synergy with the artifact based deck specifically. It, you know, it gets an artifact, free artifact on the battlefield to enable box opal, things like that. It's just handy. I mean, it, one other thing that I'll be curious to see where this card goes. I guess because it does so many different things, including giving you a little bit of a plan against aggressive decks. It fixes your mana. It's an O2 instead of an O1, so it doesn't die to like Renin 6 or like Gutshot or weird things like that. So I, I just wonder, maybe Gilded Goose is going to be here to stay for a while, regardless of what goes on with the, the Artifact Synergy decks. It just seems like it's just a good card, maybe. I don't know. There were also 43 copies of Oko in the top 32 that appeared across 13 different decks. So if we want to put another hashtag OkoWatch 2K19 in, uh, Oko's still here. Don't forget about him. I do think it's worth noting that every copy of Gilded Goose is in a deck with Okos. Oh, really? So I think the two of them go really well together, but let's say in some alternate universe, Oko gets pushed out of the format for whatever reason. I think we'll probably be seeing less geese and more birds of paradise again. There you go. Stance takes. <laughs> <laughs> and then other spicy deck lists spotted in the top 32. Simic Eldrazi, uh, which is a really cool card. It's the old, basically like the old Bant Eldrazi list, cutting white because who needs it? It's got Gilded Goose in it. Uh, Bant Control, so no Stoneford package, just a big Bant Control list. Um the Living End Electro-Dominance deck that Stan mentioned. There was a Green-White Infect deck that was in the top 32. One of the wildest decks that I've seen lately is Five Color Burn is the title on, on a Goldfish. And basically, it's a burn deck that's splashing for a Tarkus Command, Bump in the Night, a single Delver of Secrets, and Boros Charm. I have no idea what is going on with this deck, but I can say that I've seen it in 5-0 lists and now seeing it in the challenge makes me wonder if there's a little bit of something going on here. Although I really have had a terrible time whenever I've tried to play Bump in the Night in a burn deck. Uh, There was a Niv deck in the top 32, which just continues to look wilder and wilder. Every time I see one of those deck lists, I'm like, did someone just dump out all of their Planeswalkers into a deck and let somebody, uh, you know, we're going to draw them all off a Niv, I guess. I don't know. Why not? I mean, that deck is clearly here to stay. It's it's scratching a very specific itch for some people. Um, I think it'll we'll just see how much stronger it can get over time. Um, 
definitely Oko and Ren and Six made a huge difference in that since the time that we tried to test it on a Sleeve the Leave Heave episode. And then finally, there was a really bizarre not-white deck, a UBRG control deck featuring $850 in Planeswalkers, <laughs> including Oko, Ren and Six, Liliana the Veil, and Jace Vryn's Prodigy. Someone had to try sticking them all together in one deck, I guess, huh? Pay to play. Yeah, I think it was an $1,800 deck list in, in paper, all in. Seems cool. Well, you know, Planeswalkers are the most impactful permanent in Magic the Gathering right now, so why not play all of them? Especially when they cost three or less, as it's turned out. So, anybody have any current for, uh, thoughts about the modern format based on the challenge? I feel like we're kind of in, I don't want to say a rut, but it looks like a rut, where, I mean, I guess if you could say a deck that's been around for like three, four weeks is rutastic now. But, yeah, things are pretty stable. And if you like playing these decks and you're going to enjoy the format, or if you like attacking a pretty stable meta, I think you're in a good place. Like, I think you can go to a tournament, you know, a large tournament online or maybe at a SEG or Magic Fest Columbus coming up and have a good expectation what, what you're going to be seeing on day two. Yeah, I mean, I think there were some pretty notable cards missing. Uh, Stan, do you have any thoughts? Whatever happened to Stoneforge Mystic? Remember, everyone was main decking like four Spell Snare, five Colligan's Command. It was on the banned list for years and years, and now it's just nowhere. Sad. Shame. What do you think? I don't think, I mean, it doesn't line up, especially with Oko, just eating artifacts for breakfast. That's not going to be very helpful. Eat my batter skull, please. I, I mean, burn too. Is Oko so strong? In, in making food with Okos and geese so impactful that Burn just can't keep up anymore? Um, I think that Blaze at 420 or whatever that player's name would say that Burn is, is decent still. Well, that's because they're playing a Delver of Secrets. That's true. Uh, I do think it's interesting that, yeah, Oko seems to have made a difference there. Oko is also, I don't want to say that Oko is forced out, but Amulet titan is a little missing from this one there's only three of them i think in this tournament and there seems to be no green tron at all in this top 32 which i don't know if that means people are just trying out other stuff or they just feel like it's not very good at the moment but i think with regard to shane's point about the format being in a rut um i i almost, almost see that as like a glass half empty perspective um i do like your point that it's kind of stabilized it feels like the most stable modern has been in 2019 or at least in a while but part of me wonders whether that's just because there's fewer people paying attention to the format, and as a result, innovation has just slowed down. And, and the reason we were seeing this Simic Oko Urza deck at the top is because Lotus Box put the time into innovating something, and now, you know, it's the fruits of their labor, but we don't have as many, like, teams or pro players or brewers, you know, outside of the Faithless Brewing podcast that are kind of doing what they were usually doing when you have this whole wide open wild west format where you can maybe attack a meta that is still undecided or undetermined yeah i think it's super interesting that blue green in general feels kind of ascendant in in all these formats and it's hard to ascribe that to much else other than people wanted to jam oko into their decks but you know breeding pool is very expensive right now we had a bant control list above which i'm assuming was just so they could run oko we had a 
Simic Eldrazi list, which is just so they can run Oko. You know, we have this this Wurza deck that's up there in Simic as well. It just seems like right now you want to be playing with breeding pools in your deck almost no matter what format you're playing. Mm-hmm. Well, good overview, Dave. Thanks for diving into this, breaking it down for us. Absolutely. Well, that does it for the breakdown this week. Thank you, David, for doing such thorough research. Really feel like I know what's happening in modern. I mean, I haven't played Grixis Death Shadow in a long time, and your point about playing Shadow now kind of makes me want to slap it together. Yeah, I actually think, now that you mention it, that uh, the next time I jump into a modern league, it'll be with some some Death Shadow. I might go Jund, but um, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are doing a classic Sleeve Believe Heave, but this time, we're covering a different format than usual. Stay with us. In a way, today is a milestone episode. We've talked about Pioneer before, but today marks our first time giving a proper dive-down treatment to Pioneer decks. And truth be told, none of us have stopped caring about Modern. I've been playing a bunch of Modern. Kind of been brewing a little bit, actually. But Pioneer presents this unique opportunity to discover a format basically at the ground floor. And I think us on the dive-down, a lot of our listeners, and the Magic community at large has really been making the most out of this unique opportunity to be at the start of something and see what they can accomplish in an unknown meta and an evolving format. So today, we're doing a Sleeve Believe Heave of Pioneer. All three of us picked different Pioneer decks based on things we were interested in, based on things we thought were powerful, and took them through some MTGO and some LGS games to figure out what are these decks doing, whether or not you should be aware of them, and also what they might tell us about Pioneer as a format in general. So like Stan mentioned, we're going to talk about some different decks this week. But at the end of each of our discussions, we're going to rate the decks using our patent-pending Sleeve, Believe, and Heave rating system. And just to remind you all, Sleeve means we'd recommend sleeving this deck up. Take it to your next tournament because we think it has what it takes to be a consistent performer at the moment. Believe means we believe in the deck, but it's not necessarily doing anything better than another similar deck or maybe has some fundamental weaknesses in the metagame. And heave means heave it. We don't think it has what it takes, even for uh, Friday Night Magic. Shane, why don't you start us off? Oh, man, you don't have to ask me twice. So I covered Hardened Scales. Uh, After the announcement of Pioneer, Hardened Scales is probably the first deck that I looked to get the pieces that I needed. Can I ask really quick, Shane, to my knowledge, you hadn't played Hardened Scales in Modern before. What drew you to this deck in Pioneer? You know, Stan, I'm honestly not super sure. I think that maximizing the value of one of like the low-key best creatures in Modern, in my opinion, being Walking Ballista, that was really appealing to me. And synergy-driven aggro decks have historically been something I found interesting. And also... Black Green Snake was a standard deck I had built during that standard format, but I really just never played standard, so I never did much with it. I just bought the cards and sat on them and lost like 50 bucks probably. I think many people identified this deck as an early option in Pioneer. Like that Snake deck was really popular in standard, and being able to upgrade it with options like Hardened Skills seemed to appeal to everyone. 
So I describe the Pioneer Hardened Scales deck as something designed to maximize the power of two cards and increase the number of plus one, plus one counters that go on cards that are getting them. So we have Hardened Scales and Winding Constrictor. So Hardened Scales is the single green mana enchantment from Cons of Tarkir. And it reads, if one or more plus one, plus one counters would be put on a creature you control, that many plus one, plus one counters are put on it instead. That many plus one, plus one, plus one counters are put on it instead. Yeah, that, that's the key part. Yes. So you get an additional plus one, plus one. Right. And Winding Constrictor is from Aether Revolt. It's a black green two, three snack. And it reads, if one or more counters would, would be put on an artifact or creature you control, that many plus one of each of those kind of counters are put on that permanent instead. And in this deck, it's almost always going to be plus one, plus one counters. So you build around these two cards with creatures like Hangerback Walker, like Stone Coil Serpent, Walking Ballista, Steel Overseer, Metallic Mimic, Pelt Collector, Experiment One, Rishkar Pima Renegade, and you get your Planeswalkers like Nissa Voice of Zendikar. Yeah, so all of these cards that Shane just read off have different mechanics that or different triggered abilities that essentially let you put 1-1 one, one counters on them, or they trigger when certain conditions are met, in the case of Pell Collector and Experiment 1. It's one thing to keep in mind is that plus 1, plus 1 counters as a method of a design mechanic are super popular in Magic because there's a lot of iterations that the design team can do with them to express different things as far as like set design goes. So all the way from Evolve to just being able to play a big artifact creature where the casting cost is double X and then you it comes into play with X plus one plus one counters on it. There's a lot of uh, space there for card design and for cards to choose from. Yeah, so easy example, your Stone Coil Serpent is just an X creature. You, you could pay two mana of any type. It enters as a 2-2. Two, two. If you have a Hardened Scales, it comes out as a 3-3. Three, three. If you have a Hardened Scales and a Winding Constrictor, it comes out as a 4-4. Four, four. So all these things are nice. You know, everything synergizes. If Rishkar Pima Renegade hits the battlefield and adds a plus one, plus one counter to one of your creatures, you have a Hardened Scales out, it's going to add an additional plus one, plus one counter. Nissa Voice of Zendikar hits the battlefield. You use her minus. You add a plus one, plus one counter to all your creatures. You get two on each of them. So super synergistic deck. A lot of ways to enable it. A lot of creatures to take the payoff from that. So that's why you saw that large list I read off earlier, because there's a lot of different ways that people can and are building this deck. So what is the deck's game plan, right? I think it primarily is just seeking to beat down fairly aggressively and generate large creatures with plenty of these 1-1 counters on them, right? I just imagined a, a logo for hardened scales that's like aggressive, but fair. <laughs> and I think what you mean is pretty aggressively. <laughs> Yes, fairly aggressively. Yes, pretty. Yeah, it's not. It's not the most aggro deck in the format. I'll talk about that in a little bit. What I think is important, though, is that it can slowly generate this overwhelming board presence that can get through board stalls. So unlike traditional ultra aggro decks, where you're kind of relying on smaller creatures that synergize with the spells in your deck, hardened scales based creatures can grow larger through additional one one counters being placed on them through other cards. Uh, they are also serve as mana sinks, so things like Hangaback Walker and Walking Ballista can just be pumped up over time, eventually getting through board stalls. So you can do that, but you can also control the board pretty early with cards like Fatal Push, Abrupt Decay, your Walking Ballistas, and then you can push through damage on the board that you're clearing off. 
the sideboard typically has some kind of interaction in the black-green colors. So you're going to have your Fatal Pushes, your Thought Seizes, your Abrupt Decays. No more Veil of Summer, but you get things like Noxious Grasp, so on and so on. So early on, this deck was built in a way that had a lot of interaction main. So capitalizing or attempting to capitalize on cards like Fatal Push, Abrupt Decay, Thought Seize, and had some cards that initially seemed like obvious inclusions, like Steel Overseer and Animation Module, because they seemed like they would make sense. But as the format has begun solidifying itself a little bit, more testing has been done, it seems like Scales players have identified this need for a little bit more speed in the format and have moved to removing a lot of this main deck interaction and these slower cards like Steel Overseer that need to stick on the board for a while. And they've inserted more of the Evolve or Evolve-type creatures like Pelt Collector and Experiment 1. So these are both single green mana one-drops that can grow into huge threats quickly, also capitalizing on things like Winding Constrictor and Hardened Scales. Yeah. It's really interesting to see this kind of iteration happen so quickly at the beginning of the format because it definitely felt like the first couple of times I played against the Hardened Scales list that Steel Overseer and Animation Module just seemed like so powerful. You know, you you got to do all these like triggered abilities and spend your mana and you always got to use all your mana to put all these tokens on things and then make servos with Animation Module. And then it was like, two weeks went by and all of a sudden everybody's like, we're just beating down with this deck. We're going to make huge experiment ones, you know, have them be resilient and just kind of like go for it. Um, it's been pretty interesting to see the shell kind of be the same shell, but it get more refined and more fast. So both Pulp Collector and Experimental One have a limit to how big they can get, or at least a restriction on how they grow. In your experience, how big were they on average in the games where they'd get to stick around? That's actually challenging to say. I won, as, a, as an example, I, I won a single game once where the opponent misidentified themselves as the aggressor and they swung in without having lethal and they left uh, me having an E1 and a Pelt Collector, I believe at 3-3 on the board, right? Which is a good, nice starting range. They didn't see that if I untapped and cast a Stone Coil Serpent, for, uh, which would ended up, entered the battlefield as a 4-4, which then grew my two creatures on board into 5-5s five that I had lethal on board. So it's pretty easy when you have a enabler, like a Hardened Scales or a Winding Constrictor, and even casting a 4-4, which is pretty easy to do, then triggers both of those creatures, and then they get an additional counter each. So it's really not unreasonable to have them be 5-5s, five I think, fairly consistently. I think that that faster all-in style of Scales deck is just superior right now. I tested both. I think you know those Pelt Collector and Experiment 1s being able to quickly turn into 3-3 three, three threats, where you just do turn 1, E1, and then turn 2, Winding Constrictor, that turns into a 3-3 right away. And the deck can just push through more damage more quickly, and it can pretty quickly outsize the other aggressive decks, growing out of burn damage range pretty easily as well. So in, play, in playing the deck, I identified some strengths and some weaknesses that I want to run by you all and see if you agree having played against it, because I'm sure you have by now. I think the deck just works on like a fundamental level. The eight pieces of counter boosting is great, Especially since, like I said, the the snack ETB synergizes really well with those evolved creatures. 
And that sequence is just awesome because it, it strains the opponent's removal as well because it's like, oh, do I kill this snack that's threatening to add these counters? Or do I kill this 3-3-1 drop that's attacking me that can quickly turn into a 4-4 or a 5-5, right? I think that the deck's pretty flexible in its aggression. I don't think it's the fastest deck in the format by any means, but it's it gets resilience on the other hand, other side of the scale there. <laughs> Your creatures don't really easily die to Wild Slash, you know, but they do eat Fatal Pushes really well because they're going to be X or XX or two drops or one drops. So you don't have a lot of resilience against uh, push or other removal, but you do survive burn pretty easily. You can play the aggressor by having those pretty fast starts, or you can just be a little bit slightly slower than the really fast decks, and you get to quickly outvalue their smaller creatures and the aforementioned Wild Slash. And your creatures grow into a pretty big toughness pretty quickly, so they can block those incoming aggressive creatures fairly well. Experiment 1's an awesome blocker, because if you do that turn one, turn two sequence I mentioned earlier, you've got a couple counters on it. You remove those two counters to regenerate it, and it sticks on the board to get some more counters the turn after. So that's a pretty nice sequence for, for being defensive if you need to be. Another pro to this deck is you get to use Once Upon a Time. And I think I'm the only person who played a deck with Once Upon a Time this week. I'm going to go talk a little bit about it to kind of explain why I think it's so powerful it's I, I think that Once Upon a Time is just a crazy magic card. It allows green decks to smooth over so many of their opening draws for free. You can say things to yourself like, I have got one land, but I know that the odds of getting a second land in my top five is like 93%. Or I have a forest and I need a black source. And the odds of me getting one off that Once Upon a Time and my second draw is 80%. Or you can, you know, if you're if you're running mana dorks in a different deck, you can be like, I'm 57% to draw one of my eight mana dorks in the top five cards with Once Upon a Time. Who talks this way? <laughs> I love saying things like them, like these to myself. Well, no, I mean, this, these 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 are the these are the heuristics in the back of your head, right? It's like this is what Shane sounds like in his brain. Shane's also walking around being like, I'm 55% to one sandwich right now. <laughs> I'm I'm 30% to make it through this yellow light without getting in a car wreck. I'm a very safe driver. This is just how he works. I mean, I think even the fail safe of casting it for two mana later in the game is pretty darn good because in a deck like Scales, you often want a creature like a walking ballista to start taking advantage of the mana and enablers you have on board. So you can just dig for a synergistic creature. Like, like the example I gave earlier when I had the board presence where I was like, I really want a stone coil serpent right now, right? And being able to dig for it would be awesome. But with strengths come some weaknesses. I mentioned earlier, it's not the fastest aggressive deck. You can be weaker to kind of larger mid-range and control decks than some of the hyper-aggro decks because they're just getting the damage in faster than you. And it's really all about the board and your board presence. So it can be really weak to removal and sweepers. Also, like a lot of the best aggressive decks, I think it's really hard to play perfectly. It really rewards your sequencing and sequencing correctly or what you think is going to be correct. There's a lot of conflicts between doing damage now versus potentially doing more damage later by sequencing creatures in different ways or leaving your hangerback walker to pump it because it has to tap to pump. So you have to think about, well... What are they going to do in their next turn? What am I going to do on my next turn? Do I need to get damage through now? Can I hold it back to potentially synergize with something else? 
there's some stress on using your mana as well because you have all these various X spells or XX spells that you can sink different amounts of mana into. And so using your mana to its greatest efficiency really has to be balanced with how you're impacting the board in the very near term. There's even some weirdness there, I think, that's just quickly worth pointing out that in the builds of this deck that have Metallic Mimic, which I don't think there are that many anymore. No, it seems like it fell off quickly. Well, because they were getting play in the decks that have a lot of constructs, right? And part of the one of the advantages of that deck is that you can play things like Stone Coil Serpent for zero or Hangerback Walker for zero mana, and it comes in with a token because of Metallic Mimic, and then if you have a Scales Out, it comes in with another token. So you get you get a 2-2 two, two Hangerback Walker for free or, or something like that. And so maybe we'll go back to that kind of mid-rangey thing later on, but um, it's just worth noting that there are ways to kind of get free spells in this deck other than Once Upon a Time, and it's something to keep in mind, really knowing the interaction between the cards in your deck will help you be more mana efficient. For sure. Yeah, good point, Dave. I think that flyers can be a pain. I mean, Stone Call gets you reach, but you're at the mercy of your removal and you're walking ballista pings. I definitely had a really close match against uh, spirits, and them having evasion was a was a pain in my butt. I mean, that it's interesting you say that because I faced the flip side of that last when we talked about spirits last week, where I was the spirits player against Hardened Scales and Pioneer, and uh, man, spirits as built right now has exactly zero outs to stone coil in the in the 75 so if you play a stone coil uh serpent it's just kind of over especially if it's big enough that you you can't get around it you have to build a critical mass and then attack all the way around it and so it can do a lot of work for you for sure against that particular deck yeah i mean it's it's not it's not bad by any means but i think that you really want to be able to also draw some of your removal or get some walking blisses down to start clearing the board because they did go wide against me in that situation. And, you know, sometimes you just don't draw your stone coil serpent. So, yeah. And because this is a synergy deck, you really have to have your enablers for the deck to function, right? I mean, this is true for a lot of decks, but other aggressive decks look somewhat kind of like piles of power prowess creatures and burn spells that are somewhat interchangeable. How dare you? Sorry. What do you guys think about that when you've played against it? What have you felt good about it and not so good about it? Well, one thing that I found impressive is that unlike the modern version of this deck, artifact hate is not great. You will get some targets with your abrade, but there's just significantly fewer of them to the point that I don't know if I would always bring in abrade if I had better point removal. I mean, I'd probably bring in a braid just simply because it deals three damage, which is nice, but also just kind of tags an artifact unconditionally. I've been seeing some wear tears, and I'll tell you what, that sucks. Yeah. yeah. Enchant- oh, yeah. Enchantment and artifact hate. Yeah. I had wear tear on the board of, of the deck that I was playing this week, and I definitely brought it in against Hardened Scales. One thing I'm curious about, Shane, is whether you think we're still at the point that Hardened Scales is a powered down modern deck, or if it's becoming its own pioneer version no i specifically do not think that this is actually like the modern deck at all because it does not have uh arcbound ravager which is just so key to so many ways that this deck gets to a win and without it it's just more of a synergy aggro deck that gives you a lot of lines of play which is pretty nice but i would definitely say that it doesn't feel like a modern deck to me in terms of power level so it sounds to me then just from your assessment that this bears more of a resemblance to that old black-green Constrictor deck from Standard, and Hardened Scales is just incidental value it gets to play. For sure. And I think that we're going to talk about 
our thoughts about how these decks end up looking later on in the episode. So I appreciate you planting that seed, my friend. Oh, thanks. They call it a tease in the business. I wrote some notes. <laughs> um, I, but I think one specific way, Stan, and a card that I'm still never super hyped on is Hangerback Walker in this deck because I don't have any ways to blow this thing up. Yeah, like I can't, I can't pop it with an Arcbound Ravager and get a ton of flyers that just go over the board. So a lot of times, Hangerback Walker ends up just being this this beefer that is a really good blocker, or when it blocks, I get some additional value out of it. But it never feels like hyper synergistic in the same way that a lot of other that I would imagine that it does in in the uh, the scales deck in modern. Can I interest you in Nantuko Husk? <laughs> no, you cannot. So the future of this deck, I think that the Evolve Creature build is currently the best way to design the deck at, at the moment. I don't think it's finished by any means, but I think that getting on the board faster and being less weak to some of the burn spells is really good. Expecting your Steel Overseer to survive is pretty much a fool's errand, I think. I'm, I'm curious to see kind of if this all-in game one and then sideboard into your more interactive game plan is the right one. I suspect that it is. I went 6-4 in a couple leagues, and I played a, a lot of open play and saw some decent success there. I honestly could have been 4-6. I honestly could have been 8-2. I think that the could games you? versus other aggressive... Yeah, I mean, there's a, I, lost at, I lost with my opponents at one health a couple times when we were just racing hmm. against the Spirits player. It was super tight. They, they had the right card. Other, other times, I've had the right card. And that's how Pioneer works, right? That's how, modern, that's how Magic works. So I'm going to give this deck a sleeve. I think it works really well. I think it has a lot of fundamental power. I think it's weird, though. We haven't really been seeing scales show up on these like PTQ lists, these challenge lists. I'm sure. I'm unsure if that's kind of showing a lack of strong interest or a lack of a strong deck. But I think that you're not going to do yourself any damage. You're not going to hurt yourself. You're not going to shoot yourself in the foot by playing this deck. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it rewards sequencing. I'm still learning a lot of the sequences myself. And I like it. like it quite a bit. Awesome. So Shane endorses picking up Hardened Scales if you uh, are looking to go to a Pioneer event. And maybe you have some of the cards from your modern version of Hardened Scales. Or maybe you had the Constrictor deck and didn't sell the cards. And it's worth uh, polishing it up and putting some new lands in it and giving it a go. For sure. David, what do you have for us this week? What I have for you is a new hero for a new format or maybe an old hero, or maybe a hero that looks like a different hero that we've all seen before. Dave, did I ever tell you that you're my hero? Did you ever know? Yeah, did you ever know, Dave? Uh, I would like to point out the uh, the wind beneath this particular deck's wings is a, a little angel by the name of Feather, by the way. But we'll, we'll get to Feather in a little bit. So uh, this week I ran some leagues with uh, the deck that people are calling Boros Heroic. Some people are also calling it Boros Feather. So I think the best place to start when talking about this deck is kind of just explaining what the deal is with Heroic as a mechanic and why, why it would be a, a deck at all. Who's familiar with Heroic? Stan, not you. You weren't playing during Theros. No, not really. This was... So I played a lot of Khan's Standard, and I, I despised this deck. Like I am ang I, I have residual anger at this deck. There are cards in this deck that still, when cast against me today, bring up latent, lingering bad memories. I played heroic during during late cons standards, so uh I'm I'm here for it. Was that your main? 
Uh, during the Fate Reforged, like when um, when Teamer Battle Rage was in the format, that's what I was playing mm, after Mardu yeah, wasn't yeah, good yeah. anymore. So anyway, heroic is based off the ability word of the same name from Theros, which says heroic dash whenever you cast a spell that targets this creature, do X. So it's an interesting mechanic in the sense that it's not really a keyword. It's one of those abilities where it has the same kind of triggering condition, but uh, has different outcomes. And so there's lots of different cards from that block and even lots of different cards from different eras of magic that have a similar kind of benefit where it's like, when you cast a spell that targets your own creature, this thing happens. In the case of cards that have heroic uh, abilities like heroic, things like that, many of them include adding a plus one plus one counter as part of the do X clause of the, of heroic. So in a sense, part of this deck is a little bit like what Shane was doing on the, the hardened scales deck, which is finding a way to add one plus one plus one counters to creatures to make creatures that start out small, even bigger. Occasionally, the heroic cards also have bonus abilities that they get when their heroic ability triggers. So uh, things like scry one or prevent all damage that would be dealt to the creature this turn. I'm not pointing out these two for any specific reason, but you'll see in a minute why I pointed out these two abilities. But there were a lot of different heroic cards that kind of did stuff like this. The plan of the deck is basically to run a bunch of low drops with this heroic mechanic and with spells that target your creatures with beneficial effects. So we're thinking about things like pump spells uh, for the most part, but it's a little more complex than that because if you talk a lot about kind of like having a bunch of pump spells in your deck, it starts to sound a little bit like a limited deck, and this is definitely a lot more powerful than, than what a limited deck is. Um, so it's an aggressive deck and it has the ability to win games pretty quickly. It also has a pretty good long game as well, and we can talk a little bit about why that is. Um, in Pioneer... The heroic decks basically run three low CMC creature threats. Uh, the first one is Favorite Hoplite, which is a single white casting cost for a 1-2 that has heroic that says uh, give this creature a plus one, plus one counter and prevent all damage dealt to the creature for the rest of this turn. I hate Favorite Hoplite. I hate it, I hate it so much. Present, preventing all damage dealt to that creature is... So valuable so often and so frustrating. Yes, it really is because it turns every uh, every pump spell that you have in your hand or anything that can target it into a protection spell, essentially. And so your hoplites tend to survive quite a bit longer than it seems like they would for a little unassuming one mana, one two. Uh, the, the kind of best buddy of favorite hoplite in this particular deck is a card from War of the Spark called 10th District Legionnaire. And this card is a single red and a single white for a 2-2 that says, whenever you cast a spell that targets 10th District Legionnaire, put a plus one plus one counter on 10th District Legionnaire and scry one. The other thing that this card has is it also has haste, which is actually super relevant uh, in, in this. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's interesting is that the standard version of this deck ran a card called Battlewise Hoplite that was a blue-white version of this card, essentially, that just didn't have haste. And so when Pioneer launched, I hadn't realized that 10th District Legionnaire even existed and also that it had that additional keyword of haste on it. So I assumed that the heroic decks were going to be blue-white, and then when I started seeing the Boros ones, I kind of realized, oh, they, they took the car, a card that was already very good and made it even better by giving it an extra, uh, extra ability for just basically free. 
Um, the last card that is one of the mainline threats of the heroic decks is Monastery Swift Spear. Er? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, does, that doesn't have any kind of heroic keywords. No, it does not. But guess what? It does have prowess. It does have prowess, exactly. And prowess and heroic, I think, are sort of like uh, chocolate and peanut butter in some ways, mm. if, you, if you like that kind of thing. So tasty. Oh, so many Reese's were stolen from my nephew's candy bag. He doesn't need them. You need them. Don't worry. He won't, he won't notice they're gone. He's a candy guy. I'm a chocolate guy, so it works out. Oh, perfect. Perfect ecosystem. Uh, so, yeah. So, Monastery Swiss Spirit, I think in this format, just like in Modern, it's just one of the best one CMC drops to have in an aggressive deck. And that holds true here as well. Even though the counters aren't persistent, even though it doesn't have any side benefit to the fact that it grows via prowess, it's still just an incredible threat to be able to drop one of these, cast a bunch of spells, swing in, drop one of these on turn one, swing in, and then kind of build up over time. And when you say cast a bunch of spells, you're not exaggerating. This deck runs a ton of spells. Well, it's it's really interesting. There's there's two different builds, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, one other thing to note is that there's a couple. There's one other threat that does get run in this in some of the builds of this deck sometimes, and that is Soulscar Mage. So when you start to see Monastery Swift Spear and occasionally a couple of Soulscar Mages in the deck, it, I think you really start to see that, in some sense, this deck is sort of built along a similar game plan to Mono Red Prowess, was maybe built in, in Modern at certain points in time. And so, like Stan said, in order to... The, the, the thing that ties all these cards together, regardless, is you really want to cast a bunch of spells. And so in a little bit, we're going to get to the types of spells that she cast. But the thing is, there's a couple of cards that really juice this deck up for Pioneer. And also, actually, they're both still available in Standard and still get some play in Standard in a shell that's kind of like this. So two cards that get run as kind of card advantage engines in this deck are Feather the Redeemed and Dreadhorde Arcanist. And they do different things. So I'm going to read Feather really quickly. Uh, Feather is a legendary card. Its casting cost is one red uh, and two white mana. So that's a three CMC card. That's red, white, white. It has flying. It's a three, four. And it's a legendary angel. And it says, whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell that targets a creature you control, exile that card instead of putting it into your graveyard as it resolves. If you do, return it to your hand at the beginning of your next end step. So good. So very good. I'm super interesting card. It's definitely one of those mechanics where you're like, I have to read this three times to figure out if it's actually good, if it's not, if it's costing me anything extra to do this. But essentially what happens is whenever you target any of your creatures with a pump spell, with any spell that targets them, it goes back into your hand at the end of the turn instead of going to the graveyard. So you get to just keep all of your pump spells, basically. The other card that gets run in this deck is Dreadhorde Arcanist, which is a... Uh, one generic and one red for a 1-3 with Trample. And it says, whenever Dreadhorde Arcanist attacks, you may cast target instant or sorcery card with converted mana cost less than or equal to Dreadhorde Arcanist power from your graveyard without paying its mana cost. If that card would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it instead. What a mouthful. Basically, this card is sort of like a wannabe Snapcaster Mage, right? You have to attack to enable it. You basically can only do one CMC spells with it unless you do a little bit of trickery. But it lets you choose a spell from your graveyard, recast it as the Dreadheart Arcanist attacks, and kind of go on your merry way. 
Hey, I take umbrage with wannabe Snapcaster Mage. It's the proactive Snapcaster, whereas the blue version is the reactive spell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I rest my case. Fair enough. It's a lot more narrow, of course, but it's still quite powerful. And this is a card that sees play actually even all the way up to like Legacy and things like that, which is pretty interesting because you do get to cast multiple spells off of it uh, you know, across multiple turns as long as it survives. The main thing is that these two cards help you get reuses out of the cards in your hand. They help you get reuses out of the cards in your graveyard. And so they really help you convert from a super aggressive plan into a more grindy plan. Yeah, I definitely ran into some of the annoying loops that this two card combo enables, like just cycling reckless rage, which I know you talk about later was unstoppable. Yeah. I mean, I, they, they put together they th- their three card combo. So good on them. Good beats on me, but man, it sucked. Were they casting reckless rage out of the, they were casting it three times a turn or just two times a turn or what was, no, what they, was going it, on there? Even, even, even just once a turn is bad yeah. because it just eliminates my threats right. for, for, for them and doesn't cost them a card. So yes, kill, kill, kill a creature, draw another kill spell. Seems pretty good. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I was trying to figure out if there was some kind of wombo combo going on, but really it's just like, hey, if I get to punishing fire you every turn, like double punishing fire every turn and get those cards back, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I just didn't draw my removal because I didn't have a ton of it and, you know, they, they, they put it together. Yeah. And so if you look at kind of what, what goes on, you get to stack all these different effects. You get to stack up damage spells. You get to draw extra cards from cantrips. You get to save creatures over and over again. You get to kill your opponent's creatures over and over again. You get to make things unblockable over and over again. So there's lots of different options with, uh, with the suite, uh, kind of the top end being these two, uh, Feather and Dreadhorde Arcanist. So Dave, the creatures are just one half, right? Yes. I mean, the spells are kind of what get the job done in this deck. So what are the most important ones that we're looking at here? Yeah, and it's interesting because the spells on their own look like garbage, especially if you're used to playing modern. You know, like like these are not powerful spells when it really comes down to it. And I think that this is one of those things, again, that kind of, you know, we might, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but this is definitely much more of like a synergistic deck built out off of cards that are really good for these specific purposes, but they're not just inherently powerful spells the way that like your one mana spell threats would be in modern, essentially, where you're like, I'm going to play my cantrips, I'm going to play my lightning bolts, and I'm going to play my thought seizes. Like, this is kind of like, well, let's talk about what the spells are. There's basically four different types of spells in this deck. There are pump spells, protection spells, removal spells, and direct damage spells, depending on what your build is. So the pump spells are the things that make your creatures larger permanently via heroic and also in bursts from the, the kind of pumps that they have. Those are cards like Titan Strength, Defiant Strike, Madcap Skills is even in some decks, which is like a really crazy card. It's an enchantment that gives plus three, plus O oh and, and Menace. Um, the, the most important one really is Defiant Strike because even though it only gives creatures plus one plus oh, it lets you draw a card. And so it lets you cantrip through your deck. It lets you, uh, with Feather, it lets you draw an extra card every turn or, you know, if you want to get really wild with it, you can cash it in for two cards if you if you feel like you want to. Um, Titan Strength is really good as well because it gives such a, a high kind of pump to the front end. It gives plus three, plus one. And that can turn into a whole lot of damage really fast if you're kind of timing it the right way. So the first thing you have are a bunch of pump spells. The second kind of major pillar here is protection spells. The one that you're definitely going to see as a four of in, in Heroic and that you should be running as a four of in this deck is God's Willing, which 
is a single white to give a creature of yours uh, protection from a color of your choice until the end of turn, and then also scry, uh, lets you scry one. So much like Titan Strength lets you scry one, God's Willing does too. They let you kind of shuffle through your deck to be able to find more action so that you're not drawing lands when you don't need any more lands. The other thing is that while God's Willing is super important as a um, protection spell, it also lets you do some some good things like give things uh, unblockable. If your opponent's team or blockers are all one color, um, it lets you do some other stuff as well. So you can kind of, if they attack into you, you, you can make your blockers really resilient to their creatures by giving them protection um they also run uh sheltering light sometimes the reason you run sheltering light occasionally is because it's super helpful against wraths and so you kind of get this you know small package of spells that just let you protect uh your creatures so you got your pump spells to get your creatures bigger you got your protection spells to kind of invalidate your opponent's removal spells Stan, have you faced down this deck a lot? Oh, yes. Because I find these cards, how, how tilting do you find God's Willing and Defiant Strike? I, I don't know which one I hate more. Well, neither of them affect me because I'm rarely trying to cast removal spells when I play Pioneer. They're in some of my decks, but I've been on a more aggressive tilt myself. Mm. I'm intrigued to hear what you have in store. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to answer the question, though, I've been playing various flavors or playing against various flavors of red white heroic i feel like since week one if not day one of pioneer so this this deck is like i think been around and i'm glad that we're covering it now just because i think it's going to stick around too yeah totally agree a uh, little preview for my rating there uh the next kind of major pillar of spells is the removal spells that you get to run the star of this suite is Reckless Rage, which is, I think is sort of like an overlooked and a little bit forgotten card out of Rivals of Ixalan. So I'm going to read it really quick. Um, basically, costs a single red mana. It's an instant, and it says Reckless Rage deals four damage to target creature you don't control and two damage to target creature you do control. So it has this crazy upside of being one of the only four damage to creature spells at one CMC at instant speed in pioneer it might be i think it's the only spell that does that in fact and in this deck it also has the upside of adding a plus one plus one counter to one of your creatures um you know triggering the scry ability off of the legionnaire or triggering the damage prevention ability off of the hoplite the thing that's even better is that both soul scar mage and um monastery whisper both become three toughness creatures if you cast reckless rage mm -hmm. because prowess triggers first and then this triggers so they they even survive if you target them with this spell yeah the downside is almost non-existent well here's the thing that's the downside about this card is that this card is a stone cold blank against a bunch of other decks in the format so if you are running this card and you are not playing against a creature deck this is a terrible card to draw, of course. Oh, so it's, it's just as a blank text box. It's totally blank. And because you can't even use it to target your own creature for, for two damage, or if you wanted to, for some reason, target them for four damage. So running this card in main deck has definitely has a cost, but um, it's totally worth it because I think it's one of the secretly one of the best removal spells in the format. Um, but it does have a cost, some cost to it. I also would point out that the deck is running a lot of times running some number of wild slashes and searing bloods out of the board or even main deck in the case of wild slash. Sometimes we'll see how that evolves. 
Um, I think that you need these in the 75 just so you can continue to be proactive. Searing blood is really good. You know, it kills a, a two power creature or a two toughness creature and then does three damage to your opponent, just like, um, you know, the excellent way that it's used in modern burn. So I think these are good to have around. The last card I want to talk about in the spell suite here, and this one may or may not be controversial depending on what build of this deck you like, but running a single direct damage spell in the main I think is really important outside of the wild slashes that we're talking about, and that card is Bor uh, Boros Charm. I think people are really familiar with Boros Charm if they've played in Modern, if they played Modern Burn, if they played against Modern Burn. I think that in this deck, you actually get to use the other modes somewhat often, uh, you get to use it to dome somebody for four. You can make your team uh, indestructible in the face of removal or or a wrath. And then also giving a creature double strike is actually something I've done quite a bit with this deck because sometimes my creatures are bigger than four power or will be bigger than four power if I do this. Also, there's an excellent sequence where you can target something while Feather is out with the double strike ability, then redraw your Boros Charm and hit them for four at the end of the, the, end of the turn so you can suddenly do 10 damage kind of out of nowhere. Um, so personally, even though this is an expensive card, I think it's totally worth it in the deck. And I feel like I definitely favor builds that have Boros Charm in them over ones that do not. And that brings us really quickly to much like Shane's deck, uh, where he had two different builds or a build that evolved over time. There are two different builds of this Boros deck floating around. There's many different builds really, but from what I can tell, there's kind of two major archetypes. And one is the one that runs Dreadhorde Arcanist and has a few more creatures, tends to have 22 creatures, 20 spells, where you have um, Dreadhorde Arcanist and Soulscar Mage as well in your suite. And then the one that I've actually preferred over the testing was where I don't have Dreadhorde Arcanist or Soulscar Mage. I just have four each of Feather, Monastery Swift Spear, Legionnaire, and the Hoplite, 24 spells, and a couple of extra lands to make sure that I draw the lands that I need. And the whole thing that for me with this decision was that I really needed that reach from Boros Charm to be able to close games out if I sputtered, if I lost my creatures or things like that. I also think that having eight recursion cards with only 20 spells in the case of the decks that run Arcanist and Feather is just kind of like too much card value cards because I, I've often played games where I never got to cast an extra spell from Arcanist because I was just dying or the card that I was casting didn't matter. And so I really felt like Arcanist was a little too slow for what I wanted to do. And so I kind of went all in on the, the Feather solo build instead. I also liked the lighter threats because it left me some space to put a little bit more burn in. So I was even starting to, towards the end of the time, starting to shave a little bit on cards like Sheltering Light in the main deck or things like Built to Smash, which was kind of like a fifth Titan Strength in order to fit some number of Wild Slashes in my main deck so that I could just kind of have a little bit of extra burn. So... I think that it's interesting um, when I started thinking that way about the deck, I started to get a little bit worried about even though I, if I, even though I had had some good success with heroic, if maybe there started to be a little bit of a question of why don't I just play burn overall, the burn decks have done. Okay. Model red aggro has done okay in the format. And um, I think that the one thing that heroic has going for it that those other decks don't quite have is that all the all the spells in this deck or most of the spells in this deck really do cost one or two mana. Whereas in the burn decks, because you're running the spectacle cards, uh, light up the stage and skewer the critics, sometimes you're going to get a hand that's clunky hands. that are kind of full of three drops. 
And so I think if you want to make sure that you're kind of like moving towards the bottom of the mana curve, heroic might be a little better in that sense, where if you feel like you're going to have the time to stumble a little bit occasionally, if you can't cheat your three CMC spells into play, maybe burn's going to be a little bit better. Uh, but the final verdict that I had on this deck basically was that I think it's a believe plus. I don't think it's like a format staple. I think it's definitely a valid aggro deck in the formats. If you like to play mono red prowess for example i think this deck is worth it to try in in pioneer because i think it's a pretty good analog to the play style of that mono red prowess had in modern thorough very dave i guess i also took a, a stroll down memory lane with with my pick for this week's episode and i'd mentioned on a previous episode that blue red and soul was my first ever net deck after it was popularized by mike segrist at pro tour magic origins but at the time, I wasn't playing standard at all. So when I actually started playing constructed at the LGS level, and Soul Artifact had actually rotated out of the format. And at various times thereafter, I had looked at ways of making Insol work in modern, just because I think you could say I had a bit of an affinity for the combo of Insol Artifact and Darksteel Citadel. But for a litany of reasons, uh, I think many of which we understand sort of intrinsically, Insult Artifact doesn't make the cut for Modern, and the power level and consistency just isn't on par with the rest of the format. So for years, Insult basically sat in one of my bulk boxes, in a stack of cards that I never wanted to get rid of, but also never got to play. And alongside Darksteel Citadel, Bomac Courier, Shrapnel Blast, and Ghostfire Blade, for years these cards were just collecting dust, unsleeved. Oh, and you had a play you had a play set of Ghostfire Blades? I had three. Wow. wow. It's, a, it's a sweet card. It's a great card. Very important this deck, as I'll get into. But when Pioneer was announced and the prospect of playing old standard decks suddenly became realistic again, and Soul quickly reached my short list of decks I want to try in this new format. And oh boy, am I glad I made that decision because this deck rules. Pack your artifact hate people. The smuggler is coming for you. Oh no. Okay. So Insol is a blue-red deck, and it is an aggressive deck, and it actually plays a bit like Bogles in Modern, where you cast a cheap threat, you suit it up with an equipment or an aura, and then you swing for glory. And the deck gets its name from one of its most important cards, basically the key piece to this flavor of artifact aggro, and that is Insol Artifact, fondly known as the Scissors, because of the art on the card. One in a blue for an enchantment aura, enchant artifact. Enchanted artifact is a creature with base power and toughness 5-5 five five in addition to its other types. So the reason Insoul is so effective in this deck, I think is twofold. First, a lot of the cheap creatures that you can attach it to have evasion. And that is a big deal. Ornithopter, for example. Yeah, if you're playing that, which I was not in the end. Ah, oh, okay. But also, the deck can dodge a lot of the key removal in this format. So I found that I was quite a bit, significantly even less likely to get two for one than I would be if I was trying Insole Artifact or when I was trying Insole Artifact in Modern. Your cheap evasive threats in this deck are Ginger Brute, Hope of Gear Per, Smuggler's Copter, and Bomac Courier. Yeah, I was watching after Ross, I think, sort of single-handedly at least helped make in soul more power uh, popular 
I was seeing streamers just face off against it again and again. And I said in our Slack, Ginger Brute is effectively Blighted Agent. Mm. It's, it kind of feels it's that just, way. It's, it's, it's basically unblockable. Yeah, I mentioned Bomet as one of the cheap threats. It's very important for early aggression and a way to potentially refill your hand later, though I think it's worth noting that I don't like attaching scissors to Bomat Courier because I do want to pitch it later on. The deck even has some extra copies of Ensoul Artifact in the form of an M19 card called Skilled Animator, which I didn't even know it existed until this this Pioneer version of the deck was formed, but two and a blue for a 1-3 human artificer literally has the insole text on it you insole an artifact as long as skilled animators on the board and finally the deck runs three to four ghost fire blade to either make your insoled artifacts a little bigger give some of your one drops extra punch or generally providing a little bit of resilience against removal i gotta ask san how is this worth it it's it seems like it's a really easy way to open yourself up for like 1.5 for ones where they remove the creature and you spent one mana to cast this and then one mana to equip it. It just doesn't seem like it's doing enough. It doesn't it doesn't grant any evasion, it doesn't grant anything besides just tutu. I loved Ghost Fireblade and found myself putting in more in my deck over time. So what like 5? Yeah, I'm I'm up to 6 now actually. I think the reason Ghost Fireblade is doing enough is because it sticks around. And removal is so good against this deck that every top deck creature is so important. And because you have these early aggressive starts, and then if the game goes too long, you can stall, Ghost Fireblade can help sort of break through. Um, it's a nice way to get around some Wraths as well. If you have like a Mutavault or a Smuggler's Copter around, uh, just doing extra damage anywhere you can. And I think doing like bits of incremental damage, sometimes even just one point of damage off a bow mat and maybe three off of a smuggler's copter is how this deck wins over time. Okay. One of the biggest strengths of this deck was how fast it was. And I found that its ceiling was swinging for five damage on turn two. There were some games I'll just flat out win on turn four because I was able to swing for 10 damage, cast a teamer battle rage or shrapnel blast and close it out really quickly. It could also go really wide, and some games I would keep a creature-heavy hand and play a turn one Ginger Brute, and then turn two Bowmat and another Brute, and I was amazed to discover how often a hand like this could still get there, thanks to both Brute's evasion, Bowmat eventually replacing itself or getting you up on cards over the course of a game. And in general, I was actually impressed by how this deck was, considering its propensity for getting two for one. In part, thanks to Ghost Fireblade, Mutavault, and Smuggler's Copter. Targeted removal would sometimes be a setback, but these powerful lands and equipment and vehicles sticking around makes it a lot easier to recover quickly. And then, as I mentioned, the deck will have occasional blowouts thanks to Shrapnel Blast, which sac is one in red for an instant, sack a target, deal five to any target, Teamer Battle Rage, and even Stubborn Denial. I had a game against Zach at the LGS where I had a 5-5 on turn two, then on turn three, rather than overcommitting to the board, I swing with my five. My opponent had no blockers. I'd cast an early teamer battle rage, and suddenly it's turn three, and they're at four or five life. Likewise, in Soul Artifact turns on Stubborn Denial, which I think is very important. Yeah, that's super interesting to see, because that's a dimension that the deck didn't have when it was in standard, for sure, because it was a little bit before, uh, before that uh, era, I think. Yeah, speaking of dimensions that the deck didn't have in standard... 
Attaching a soul artifact to smuggler's copter is really good because you no longer have to crew the copter to attack with it. And even a ensouled copter gets to loot every time it attacks or blocks. That's a big looter scooter. Yeah. Does it, it doesn't have flying? It sure does because the vehicle has flying. Seems okay. Like Shane, I was playing Stone Coil Serpent in this deck, and I found that to be super relevant because it's got protection from some of the most important spells in Pioneer, namely Oko, the Trickster, Teferi, Time Cop, Abrupt Decay, Drown of the Lock, Assassin's Trophy, etc. Likewise, when you ensoul a card like Stone Coil Serpent or Hangerback Walker, those 1-1 counters stay on, so your ensouled artifact is bigger than a 5-5. Mm -hmm. something that ross miriam uh kind of introduced to me in the list that he was playing online was main deck phyrexian revokers which i found also generally great and maybe that's perhaps in some ways indicative of either the nature or the issues with this format right now but there were very few games where i found phyrexian revoker wasn't relevant as a pithing needle effect and even in those games where it wasn't, at least I'd have a, a cheap creature that I can ensoul or shrapnel blast. Likewise, ensoul just has some amount of incidental value with powerful sideboard cards, whether it's Pithing Needle or Damping Sphere, the aforementioned Phyrexian Revoker. Um, I also played Aether Sphere Harvester in my sideboard against burn decks, and to have a big blocker and putting ensoul on that was really important. Sweet. Yeah, I tested out Aether Sphere in one of my builds to combat against aggro decks with the life gain, and I, I thought it was it's not a necessary inclusion, but I thought it was cool. It was definitely it definitely won me it won me a match for sure. Yeah, the fact that it's only crew one I find really nice. Uh whether you're playing Bomat Courier or, you know, a hoplite. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I, I also love the idea of of insoling a damping sphere. <laughs> We were kind of like, I got my sideboard card and also <laughs> a threat. Yeah. Yeah. In Vintage, you can elk your Black Lotus. In Pioneer, you can ensoul your Aether Sphere Harvester or your Damping Sphere or your Pithing Needle. The deck does have some weaknesses. I don't want you to think that I've broken the format wide open because if you're not careful, you still will get two for one. And there's no shortage of good sideboard options against ensoul decks. There's cheap instant speed artifact hate. The four mana Karn's stony silence effect can be a huge setback to either your vehicles, um, your ghost fire blade, even trying to tap uh, dark seal citadel for mana. And pithing needle effects can have a similar impact shutting off equipment or vehicles. Also, I kind of feel like there's a lot of bad artifacts that people can play in these decks, which obfuscates some of this deck's potential. Because sometimes you'll just get there thanks to attaching an ensoul to your Darksteel Citadel or, you know, some other cheap permanent. And then you'd have these dead cards that you didn't realize were actually not aiding your plan because you won quickly enough anyway. Yeah, it's kind of how I feel about Hardened Scales as well, Stan. Like, it just sort of feels like there's so many cards to choose from that can slot into various archetypes that just knowing what the best picks are, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Like like Dave like Dave mentioned, there's there's construct interactions with metallic mimic. Are people ignoring those? Did they give up on that too quickly? Who knows? No one. Not not a soul knows. Yeah, a couple of other weaknesses I just want to point out is that sometimes I felt like my very small one ones for one would get outclassed by larger creatures. And 
I also expect hate for this deck is going to get more common as the deck gets more popular. Um, and as long as artifact hate is cheap and has such a low cost, like card like a braid is a perfect example or wear and tear for that matter, where it's relevant across a bunch of matchups, this deck can start to lose some of its power position. You can even run Vandal Blast if you want to get to a point where you're going to shatter storm some people. You want to get nuts, Dave? Let's get nuts. Not me, but someone might want to. <laughs> so in terms of takeaways and next steps, I do think there's a lot of tools to play around with and the deck can continue to innovate. And perhaps it'll never truly be solved because things like Emery, uh, Lurker in the Lock, Springleaf Drum is legal in Pioneer. I was playing it in this deck for a while, eventually moved away from it, but it's still such a good way to fix mana that I think it's definitely in the arsenal. Vehicles are around. There's They're printing more vehicles practically every set. And likewise, future artifacts in general. As new tools get printed and more targets for and soul artifact emerge, I think this deck can continue to grow and become a consistent player in the format. I also wonder whether the card Dive Down might be playable in this deck. Yes! You know, kind of like a Blossoming Defense, just a one-mana quote-unquote counterspell that protects some of my, you know, important threats. Maybe this is where we finally make it work. In short, if it's not clear, I'm a total sleeve on this deck. I think it has the potential to be literally one of the best decks in the format, at least right now. Almost like Affinity is in modern as just this uh, lingering, aggressive artifact strategy that uh, will punish people who are unprepared for it. I'm going to keep playing with it. I hope Ross Merriam does too, because I want more pro Magic players innovating and thinking about this deck so that it does get better. And uh, I don't know, maybe if you match with me online, I'll insult your artifact. <laughs> Just as a courtesy. That's right. It's a sleeve. Sleeve all day. Double sleeve it. Double sleeve it. Wow. I, um, I'm, so, I'm excited for you. I think it's interesting that the, this deck has definitely been one of the like undercurrent talks of, of modern on like Twitter and around podcasts the last week or so. So I'm glad that we, somebody checked this, this deck out. You mean around pioneer? Yeah. Around pioneer. Sorry. So one thing I noticed y'all is that we all tested pretty aggressive decks. And I think that makes me want to ask you, do you, what do you think of the format? Let's talk. Let's let's first talk about the speed. Like I thought, I faced just so many aggressive decks. Was that your your all experience, or what? What were you thinking so far? Well, that was definitely my experience too. Um, I did see the occasional control deck, or maybe something like in the mid range variety, but more often than not, I was paired against aggro creature based strategies, and generally, when I lost, it was to decks that could out aggro me. So I did. In my sample size, find that speed is the name of the game right now. I can't believe you're getting out aggro. I was going to say, what do you feel like it out aggro you? I kind of felt like this deck would be the one that was the fastest but least resilient kind of version. Is that not true? Um, I don't know if we know what's the fastest deck in Pioneer yet because mm. the deck dumps are huge. So many people are playing. There's so much innovation happening on a daily basis. But to answer your question, I lost to White Weenies. Um, playing just like that Something a little wider than you probably it was a little wider playing two mana two two first strike whatever that knight of the white orchid is i think yep. that's what it's, what it's called i also lost to a humans deck um just because i got crushed by reflector mage 
bouncing back anything with yes. its whole artifact hurts. Yeah, that'd be really good. What about you, Dave? What are you what are you thinking? So my I think my experience was a little different than than your all's maybe. I did three leagues with with uh, heroic and I definitely faced at least five control decks, maybe six control decks out of out of the the games that I played and you know, I didn't do great against those particular matchups. I definitely um kind of did better in the against the aggro decks that were trying to kill my creatures or interact with them in other ways and I was just out racing or out tempoing people. Uh, but I faced Esper control, Demir control, I faced Saltai mid-range, I faced blue green nexus at least once. Um there were uh, blue white. Uh I faced a lot of decks that were trying to just run like uh, for supreme verdicts and just kind of like going for it. So, I, I, I my impression was not quite so steeply towards the aggressive side. Um, but there's definitely a lot of just good creature beatdown decks out there right now. I think that people are starting to like move. Like I said about your deck, Shane, about the hardened scales deck, is that people are just starting to figure out how to iterate and refine down to the lowest mana curves. And find out what those really powerful one mana spells are that are available in Pioneer. And now they're trying to move their way, you know, build the decks back up around those as being key because we're having that kind of like um, ineffable law or ineffable truth of modern kind of translate down into Pioneer, which is your spell should try to be one CMC as much as possible. All right, guys, I have a theory that I'm working on. I want to run it past you, which is that Pioneer is more like a standard plus format than a modern minus format. And I, I will support this with some observations I've had. Please. I demand you do. Yes. So a number of the decks that felt like ported to downgraded modern strategies in general just seemed pretty underpowered to me on both sides of the battlefield. So whether it was, is it Phoenix? Something I tested a little bit. Blue-white control, something I played against. Even hardened scales, which we kind of danced around earlier. Yeah, I don't know if I like I said, I don't know if I'd call it the same angle of attack, but it definitely is, you know, similar idea, right? Well, you know, something we had touched on was that hardened scales in Pioneer is more reminiscent of the green black uh, snake deck from Standard. And likewise, I was generally more impressed with the strategies that felt like souped up standard decks of your. So like what are you thinking about? Like Nexus? Mono Black and Soul, Heroic, even these like Emerge decks. Shane, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. <laughs> are you guys reading from the same list right now or are you just reading each other's minds? <laughs> Freaky. No, I, I mean, those those are all things that when when I saw you write that, I, all those just popped into my head. Just like, yeah, maybe maybe Stan's onto something here. And I wonder if this has to do with the nature of removal and interaction in this format letting those spells essentially set pioneers power level i think it 100 percent does stan i mean it's it's the difference in power level of removal between modern and pioneer is vast yeah mm -hmm. right and you know standard removal tends to either be weaker than eternal formats either more situational often more expensive and I feel like historically the decks that rose to the top in various standard formats were the ones that could dodge a given format's interaction. And since the average removal cards in Pioneer are more akin to what a standard format might provide, the standard strategies that were skirting interaction in the past just continue to do that today in this new format. I think the conclusion I'm coming to is that when you're trying to port a modern deck, 
The problem might not be that it gets hit by removal or interactive spells specifically, but rather it's a crippled strategy because the card pool is more limited. And instead, if you can build a stronger standard deck than a weaker modern deck, chances are you might be on a better footing than you know opponents that are powering down older, more established decks from other formats. What do you guys think about that? No, I think I think that you're on to something there, Stan. I think that that makes sense. Um, I think that's one of the reasons we saw something like Veil of Summer get banned, is to try to open up the opportunity for the removal that does exist to even find targets against a certain section of the decks that exist out there. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting here is that I, you know, I agree with kind of the um, conditions of the argument that you put together. I'm not sure I agree with the conclusion quite yet. I, I in the sense that um, I don't know if we're going to be stuck in this metagame forever, you know, because a couple of things are going to happen. One is I think that there are other cards lurking out in Pioneer like Reckless Rage, which are powerful removal spells that you can turn their downside into a plus and then figure out a way to build a deck that takes the most advantage of that. So when we talk about the fact that, hey, Pioneer is missing Path to Exile, for example, I start to think to myself, what is what do we have to do to make Chain to the Rocks good? Mm-hmm. You know, because that's yeah. a one that's a one CMC super versatile spell. It has a restriction. How can I build a deck around making that restriction not a restriction? And I think there might be some other cards out there like that. I think the prevalence of how good color hosers are right now is kind of plays in the same way where I think people just sort of have to maybe adjust what they think is uh, acceptable for removal and start to find decks that those make sense in instead of, like you said, trying to adapt decks that just had access to better spells down into this format. I mean, I think this is just a long-winded way of saying that I was very unimpressed with Is It Phoenix. And I think that <laughs> I think that yeah. deck is going to have to change for it to stick around in, in Pioneer, despite some of its results, even in this past weekend. Yeah, the cost of spells is a lot in that deck. It definitely feels like it's a lot slower to me. Yeah, I mean, it's still getting the job done. Like I hate seeing it as a scales player. It's, seeing a turn yeah. two thing in the ice still sucks, but I do have the opportunity to sideboard in removal, and. That's how I. I mean, I, I beat uh, Patron Dom in uh, in our in our, fi- in our fifth match of wow. both of our leagues. We actually got paired against the, up against up against each other, and uh, yeah, I drew my removal. He he didn't draw enough threats, and I ran him over. How how dare you so, drag one of our loyal patrons on the air live on the radio? I, mean, I think I think I got I got lucky. I think my odds are not great in that matchup, but. Anyway, yeah, I think I think Dave and Stan, you both have good points. I think that the format is not at all solved. I think we're in an initial established format, but I think that they're going to craft the game through both banning powerful cards that don't have good answers yet. And I think we'll see people be able to craft the answer-based decks a little more fine-tuned as the format becomes more stable. Uh, the loss of Veil of Summer hopefully opens things up a bit. I think people may not be playing enough things like Languish, may not be playing enough things like like not even enough Supreme Verdict-based decks because those are hard to build. I think that hopefully we'll see those things open up. I think if you want to see some Supreme Verdict decks, we you should go check out one of the builders that we talk about on here recently, which is a, who is uh, Aspiring Spike, has been playing a ton of blue-white control and Pioneer lately, and all of the decks feature for Supreme Verdict. So if you want to see someone who's having some success with it, I would check uh, check him out on Twitter and see wh- what he's doing at the moment. Well, there you have it, folks. Pioneer, brand new format, 
solved already right here on the dive down. We'll surely be talking about more Pioneer in the future. Definitely still focusing on modern when we can. We're just excited to be playing more magic than ever before. So we're not retiring the modern format just yet. Let us know what you think about Pioneer and us covering Pioneer. Tweet at us, talk to us on Reddit, email us. We're interested to see how you all respond to you know, larger amounts of Pioneer content. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we've got a listener question all about our favorite magic gear. Stay with us. Friend of the show and patron Jason, the greater Gargadon, asks... The greatest Gargadon. Oh, wow. Can you give us a breakdown of your paper magic gear? Sleeves, deck boxes, deck holders, glossy or matte? How do you store and organize cards? <laughs> and funny enough, not only is this something that the three of us have individually thought a lot about, it's also something we talked about a lot as co-hosts and have even adopted some of the same systems uh, and, and argued about and habits. Yeah, Dave, uh, why don't you start? Because I think both Stan and I have taken a cue from you. Well, I think that I'll talk just about organization really quick and then we can talk about our favorite gear for a second. Yeah. So sure. I've done a lot of things over the years as far as organization went. I had binders. I would try to keep cards together in decks. I would try to do a combination of keeping standard cards in one binder and then modern cards in another binder. Then I had binders organized by color. I think that ultimately what it came down to me was I, I realized one day that what I really should do is just have um, uh, I have Ultimate Guard archive boxes for each color and for non-colors and for lands and for multicolor, just basically for all the different categories. And I just sort all my cards sleeved. Any card that I'm going to keep in my collection of cards I'm going to play with, I have them sleeved alphabetically in the corresponding box to their color. And that's it. It's just the simplest system that I found over the years of... Because the main problem with binders is it's nice to be able to flip through your box and see what you have... Flip through your binder and see what you have. But it's impossible to keep them organized when you want to put new cards into your yes, cards. Yes, impossible. I had some of those really cool four-up binders where it's like four across and three down. You get to see your play sets in nice big rows. But like you said, it's like you get new cards or you have two of one card. Do I put two singletons next to that? Do I, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a total pain. Yeah. And so I, I have my entire collection logged on goldfish. And then I also have the cards, like I said, alphabetized by color, uh, in sleeves, in boxes so that I always know where they are. I always know where to put them back and they're always in the spot that they're supposed to be. And I tell you what, I used to lose cards all the time. I used to find like white cards in my red binder or like things that I just jammed into a sleeve somewhere. The boxes have totally fixed that for me. When I build a deck, I get my boxes out. Everything's where it's supposed to be. I can do it in like 15 minutes now. Dave, what kind of box do you use? Uh, I have a bunch of 400 count archives that I kind of wish I had one of the bigger ones at this point, the like 2000 card or whatever one, but I'm just going to keep getting those as I expand out. I, I have my red, they're basically like split. Like I have a blue white box, a red black box, a green and artifact box, and then a landed multicolor box. And all of the boxes are starting to get towards capacity. So I'm going to have to get some, some more. Surprisingly, last thing I'll say is I was shocked that the car, the color that I have the most cards from is red. 
Red is almost a whole box on its own. You know, I, I've adopted this method. I also use the Ultimate Guard archive box. Love it. Uh, great material. Uh, watch the professor's videos to go into more detail about them, but, you know, we're fans. A small challenge I have found with uh, storing them this way, it's hard to find really good dividers. Oh, no, they, they make them, man. You can just buy them. They have like these thick, like I have like these thick plastic dividers that I can. I wrote the, on the top, like blue, white, etc. I'll point. I'll point you to them. Yeah, please do. Well, we can do a link in the show notes as well. I, I have mine from an old fat pack from Time Spiral that I just wrote on the back of. Yeah, I, I also after I saw Dave's system, I, I uh, lifted it as well. I have three archives. I need to get to a fourth now, especially with uh, Pioneer cards going to be mixed in with my modern cards. That's something that I. You had to make a decision on that. Yeah. That's the thing that I was going to say too, is like, I don't try to subdivide things by format. So any card that I'm keeping that I want to play with just goes by color alphabetically so I can find it. That's it. What I am doing with Pioneer though, is because I don't want to just double sleeve like 600 prospective cards is I'm just going to put them in perfect fits because those are reasonably costed. And I won a bunch of them when I beat Dave in our fantasy football league. Um, Yeah. And so I, I'm just going to put those in perfect fits and then put them in the, the archives in order. And then when I use them, I will double sleeve them, put them in sleeves as well. Speaking about sleeves, something that I think we all do that I, I don't believe Dave touched on is we keep all of our cards in the exact same type of sleeve relative to our preference, right? So yes. our archives are full of cards in a single type of sleeve just to make it a little easier swapping between decks on the fly. Yeah. yeah. I probably have 1,500 double-sleeved cards in turquoise dragon shields yeah. just because I like that color. I use black glossy dragon shields. I yes. use the Yes, classics. Only classics. Yeah. Right. And I use black matte dragon shields because I like the friction. So one thing, though, that I'm still developing a system for is incoming cards. Oh, yeah. What a nightmare. And I think my weakness is relying on my memory. Like I'll put stuff in a pile on my desk and be like, well, clearly I'll remember this is to be entered into my MTG goldfish inventory. And then like, I'll move them into the, the, the storing system. But it's like, I just need to basically have an, uh, like some kind of deck box that's incoming and some kind of deck box that is to be filed so that I know what's gone into the inventory and what hasn't. And stop relying on these random piles like on my dresser, on my desk, on the coffee table, because my wife does not like it. I have an Ultimate Guard boulder that is just full of cards that need to be entered into the database, basically. And then then they're not sorted into the boxes until I do that. I need to get better at, at putting my collection M2GO. I tried to once, and it's just such a tedious exercise. And especially the rate at which cards enter my collection, it's so hard to form a habit out of keeping up with that there's various like scanning systems now not worth it i've i've tried it a couple of times it just i just sat down i spent four nights doing it entered all the cards and that was just it you know we watched the great british baking show or something like that and that was it here's a real thing though when you sell the card remember to delete it yep but dave how good are you at updating your list when you buy new cards every week or every day i know what you are up to so i i i don't update my list that frequently but i'd never sort something into the boxes until they they're on the list so i have my in, my incoming box is quite big i have a i have a batch that i need to do pretty soon 
um, you know, probably 150 or 200 cards, but it, it is what it is. At least I know what they are. Like they're in the box that is like to be logged. And, and that's just kind of where they sit until they are logged. Yeah, one of the advantages of paying for Goldfish, one, I'm to the point where I just want to pay sites and content producers for being awesome. I use MTG Goldfish like every day. So paying them six bucks a month is worth it to me as a service and to me as uh, just an awesome site. And two, you can click on any list on Goldfish and then you can say like, show me my price on paper or like my price online. And I just like clicked this Mardu shadow list, right? My price in paper. It compares it to what's in my inventory. So I can see, oh, I don't have an on grass rampage and I don't have a Kaya's guile. So if I want to play this exact list, I need to grab those two cards. Otherwise I'm good to go. So that's a super valuable feature. And I, I find it essential. Yeah. And it's the whole reason I switched to logging all my cards on Goldfish. I used to log most things on Quiet Speculation because I did a lot of trading for a while and buy listing and stuff. And I just kind of migrated away from that. Top three best parts of Magic the Gathering for me winning challenging, highly interactive games, using the exact correct token when a card calls for a token, <laughs> and three, using killer gear and awesome sleeves. Yeah, I've I've so just to put a bow on this at least for me is I've I I love Ultimate Guard products. I've used them since the Ultimate Guard fl- uh, flipping tray was released in the states. I got it like on mass drop before it was even kind of like retail offered, and I've had the exact same one for five years now. And I've just bought more and more Ultimate Guard stuff, and I love Dragon Shields. So I know Katanas are supposed to be dope, but I'm not resleeving things. Yeah, yeah, same same exact split for me. Yeah, my only difference is. Uh, I use an Ultra Pro satin box, the three chambered box, to store my main deck whenever I'm like going to an event with a single deck. Too big, too big, too big. I think it's fine. I do use the Ultimate Guard like two by two flip and tray when I want to like come out with like a little battle box or a little one v one. No, that thing rules. I love that thing. It's gigantic, but like it's awesome to have a couple decks. Like you can be like, here's my main, and here's like my in between rounds deck. Here's or my like, modern deck and my pioneer deck. Yeah, that's the thing now. Oh yeah. Now there's dice in the middle too. Love it. Thanks, Ultimate Guard. Sponsor our podcast. <laughs> Get at us. All right. Thanks, Jason, for the great question. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon where joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. Probably one of the best parts about joining our Patreon is chatting with us all day and seeing the killer jokes that I workshop while I'm looking busy at work. Check us out at patreon.com slash the dive down to sign up. Also shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the dive down. Sign up for manatraders using promo code the dive down all one word. For 10% off your first three months of renting paper or magic online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and break new formats!
What do you guys use to polish your decks? Is there like a product or just a, a rag? I just tweak the 75 and then it's polished after that. No, you guys you have to use 3M hyper finish. It's it's a it's it's not gonna be an auto zone. You might have to go to like a specialty store, but oh man, it's worth it. So I'd like to take my deck and put it in one of those uh, tumblers where you kind of like turn it on for a little bit and, and it goes, and then when you get it out, the deck is actually kind of like a nice looking geode. <laughs> you can take your deck to the golf course, mm-hmm. put in that little thing. It looks like, it looks like a ball washer, right? But it's really an MTG deck washer. Mm-hmm. 